This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is August 25th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. My name is Bruce Fredericks, and I was at Hofstra Radio uh, from September of 1977 through May of 1980 when I graduated. So I only attended Hofstra for three years, having transferred in okay. as a sophomore. Yeah. Do you remember any shows or programs that you worked on? Yes, uh, vividly. Um, I uh, worked on as a disc jockey, combo jock on Changes, which was the late night uh, uh, album-oriented uh, rock program. Loved that a lot. Um, did, uh, did a jazz show for a while, the Jazz Spectrum. And also did an environmental public affairs show called Terra Firma, which uh, I didn't know that I would like when I did it. I thought, well, I'm kind of paying my dues here. And I ended up really, really liking it. Was that something that you hosted or something you were producing? I started out as an assistant producer too, and it's killing me. I don't remember her last name, but she was wonderful. Her name was Jane. It was her show. And then uh, eventually uh, the baton was, uh, baton was passed to me and I became the producer of the show. Okay. Did you have any other titles or positions of management at the station? Yes, I did. Um, I was chief announcer for a while, inheriting that from, uh, uh, the very talented Wayne Kurtzman, mm-hmm. and uh, then became music director of the radio station, um, uh, learning a lot from Jim Del Balzo, may he rest in peace, um, uh, who just taught me a, a ton about uh, the record industry, which he himself um uh, went, went into afterwards and, and was, was, uh, quite successful at it. When you were on the air, did you use your own name? Did you have any nicknames or aliases? Well, everybody always said Bruce Fredericks, that's a good radio name. You should go into yeah. radio. So, so it kind of, you know, didn't, didn't need a nickname that the, uh, one, uh, one syllable first name followed by, uh, two syllable second name seemed to to serve me well. So I, I stuck with it. All right. Um, so this is a two-part question and feel free to ask, answer whatever order makes sense to you. But I'm always curious what it is that brings people to the radio station. And then if you could describe what it was like when you got there, maybe people that you met, where was the station? What did it look like? If you remember any people who were around, what was going on when you first arrived? Okay, so to take your initial question, what draws people to the radio station, any radio station, to to want to be a part of it? And I think it's uh, they they have an attachment to the medium of radio. They find it probably from their own experiences of having uh, grown up and listened to you know radio personalities of uh, one genre or another. It to be very uh, comforting, intimate uh, imagination, um, in uh, spurring and, uh, just, just came, came to it that way and decided that th- this is something that they wanted to try their hand at. Um, what, what drew me to Hofstra radio was, so when I was a freshman, I went to school in Ohio 
and I was on the air at uh, WSLN, uh, I think it was 90.1, Delaware, Ohio. And I was uh, uh, on air rock jock there and also was the music director of that at a small, quaint little college radio station. And uh, when I knew I was going to transfer, I said, you know, I want to transfer to a school with a really good uh, radio station slash radio program, because I, I think there's a good chance I would like to make that my profession. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I looked at a whole bunch of schools and, and landed on Hofstra. It had a fabulous reputation you know, that and, and Fordham and Syracuse were, you know, regarded as the top college radio stations in the country. And, uh, I, am very glad I did. Uh, so what drew me to WVHC, you know, there, what was my first experience there? My first experience there was during, uh, orientation, uh, which I attended a few days before school started. I remember over on, uh, the res- residential campus side, they had a, all of these uh, booths set up where you could, uh, you know, sign up for clubs. And there was Jim Del Balzo on the uh, remote system, uh, spinning records and and saying hi to everybody. Come on down, meet us at the radio station, giving away prizes. And and I I, I basically went over there and hung out there the whole time. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, I found my club. I'm never leaving. So uh, re- really, uh, that, that was my first impression. In, in those days, WVHC, the analog days, as I'll refer to them, because mm. we were all analog all the time, uh, the offices were up in uh, Mason Hall, I believe, second floor of Mason Hall. I think it was Memorial Hall. Memorial Hall. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. See, uh, memory fading a little bit. Good thing you got to me now. Uh, and the, the, uh, the studios themselves were in the basement of the little theater, uh, where the carpet disintegrated by the day. And they had a back <laughs> vacuum cleaner down there that had a name. His name was Kirby. And we would all take turns keeping the station neat. And when you'd vacuum, Kirby would just start to chew up more and more of the carpet. And it was really a, a, a sight for sore eyes. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's that's where we were back then. That is the first time hearing of uh, this magical vacuum cleaner. That's, uh, that, that's quite an interesting detail. I've, I've heard a lot of different details about the station underneath the little theater, but that is that is a new one, and, and that's a great detail. Probably because paying my dues, I probably logged some some good time on Kirby moving him around. He had a little light on the front of him, and it actually had, you know, it was, you know, they, I guess they used to make vacuum cleaners kind of cute. Uh, from a product ID standpoint, because it, it had like a face on it and had, a, as I said, a light and everything. So uh, anyway, that's that's my Kirby story. Oh, that's funny. That's right. And I was wondering if someone at the station named it or if that was the, the product name, but that's probably uh, irrelevant at this point. Probably Jeff. Jeff probably. <laughs> um, so uh, two questions out of your, your movement from, from Ohio coming to Hofstra, I guess, for, for some of our listeners who grew up in the internet age, um, it, 
how difficult was it or how easy was it to find out information about other radio stations, other colleges with the radio stations that you might be able to to go to because you couldn't just go to the internet. There must've been, uh, it must've been something of a challenge. That's an excellent question. And I, I'm going like, can I remember life before the internet, <laughs> before cell phones, before any of it? And I, you know, I think it was just word of mouth. You know, you just meet people. Uh, I, I knew people at Syracuse. Um, uh, so I, I knew very much about the Newhouse School of Communications and, and because Hofstra was, you know, on Long Island and I grew up in, in Great Neck in the same County, I could get the radio station from my house. So I just tuned in and listened and I could also pick up Fordham university. So, uh, you know, you got to just be a little bit more resourceful, but you know, hell, right. turn on, the, turn on the radio. You'll, you'll hear what you need to hear. And, uh, VHC, uh, to me sounded like it had a very professional air sound, uh, with people who really were invested in what they were doing. And, uh, that, that appealed to me. So how did the studios and offices of WVHC compare to the station that you started out with in Ohio? They were pretty similar because it, you know, it's the, it was the same era of technology. Uh, you know, there were two turntables on either side of you mm-hmm. and there was, uh, I think they had, I, I believe VHC had a Gates board, and uh, with the, the big dials we called POTS, or, which was short for potentiometer, and uh, had, had a, um, uh, a remote um, uh, meter to, to track the transmitter to make sure you weren't putting out too much signal. Uh, there was a, a rack with you know, a reel-to-reel tape deck or two. Uh, and I, I remember in production, you know, particularly working on my public affairs show, Terra Firma, you know, spent a lot of long nights with a butcher block and a razor blade and splicing tape, listening and and uh, splicing that tape together and making a show. And it was, you know, uh, other other than, you know, cut, cutting the bejesus out of your, your fingers mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with, the, uh, with the razor blades. Um, it was a, there was a real sense of accomplishment for having done that and to do it so that you couldn't hear the splice. Yeah. You, you know, it was a, it was a tight edit. It sounded good. And it also forced you to really think and listen critically to make good, smart choices, understanding, you know, this, this show had to come in. It was a half hour show. So I had to come in in uh, 27 and a half minutes because you ha- had to allow for uh, the, uh, the carts, as we call them, the commercials or promos. Uh, obviously, we were non-commercial, so they were just all promos um, at, at the at the bottom of your show. Um, so you, um, uh, it 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 forced you, you know, think what you're doing, understand your time, understand the the narrative flow you're trying to accomplish in your show, and make your edits and 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 live with it because you know. First of all, I remember nights the show was going to air on a Saturday morning and I was up to 3.34 in the morning <laughs> finishing the mm. edit on the show. And, you know, today it's uh, uh, it, it's obviously um, a lot more efficient to do it digitally. But but I, I, I'm, I'm sure those, those last minute deadlines still exist. That's, that's just 
I think. Oh, it's it's the nature of the beach. It's the nature of creativity. Uh, and you know, we, we say, you know what, there's something we could do to make this a little better. I'm going to do this. I'm going to put this, um, intro uh, here and, 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 you know, that's okay. That's, that's pride of ownership mm. and, and it's, it's great to have it. It's great to have it. So many people I've spoken to who first arrive at Hofstra radio, uh, don't necessarily have any background in radio. They're interested or they've done some sort of performing arts, but they don't necessarily have a background in radio, but you show up and you've already had experience and been a music director at a station. Um, two questions. Did you have an FCC license yet? And was there any sort of training program to get you prepared to be on the air or was it sort of learned by osmosis? Are you talking about when I was at school in Ohio or, or when I got to Hofstra? Well, uh, mostly about Hofstra, but if there is some sort of training program in Ohio, that's interesting too. Oh, uh, very little. <laughs> in Ohio, I, it, it was very osmotic. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's kind of like, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, you know, uh, turn the lights off when you, when you, after you sign off, lock the door. Um, kind, kind of like that. Uh, but VHC was very structured. Um, uh, you know, even though I had the background, they respected that, but you know, you still had to, you know, prove yourself on, on, on the new playing field. And I had no problem with that whatsoever because it was all, I was a sponge. I was so much more. I had to learn at a, a, a station of the caliber and you know, reputation of VHC than from, from where I, I came. And, uh, I, I remember, uh, no, I did not have an FCC license. Uh, don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Ohio, there was no requirement. It was a, I mean, it was a very, uh, low output station we might've been 10 or 20 Watts. I was, it was, it was very low. And so, um, yes, it was required that, uh, I study and go down, to Varick Street in Manhattan and take the uh, Friendly Candy Company's or FCC's test mm-hmm. and get a third class and then broadcasters endorsed license. And then it got to hang on the wall in the hallway leading leading to the air studio, uh, proudly displayed. Um, in addition to that, um, to, to be on the air, uh, as an announcer, you had to take, um, uh, Dr. Wayne Kurtzman. He's not really a doctor, mm-hmm. uh, his, his announcing class, which was wonderful. This C ceaseth and the C sufficeth Wayne, did that sound right? Did I do that right? <laughs> um, and, and that was fun. Uh, and then to be able to touch the board, to do any engineering, uh, y- you had to take some engineering classes with uh, Tony Miller, who is a really cool guy. And uh, and then, you know, eventually you had to be cleared if you wanted to do a show like Changes, uh, where you were a combo jock, because at that hour, anybody who came to the studio, you, you know, they're, they, they were going to serve both purposes. Then you had to learn how to, how to combo, how to, you know, how to get that record all set up you know, how to, uh, you know, you know, back time the record, you know, intro the record, let it go and pot it up and the whole bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what impressed me about, you know, both of those classes is the, the, um, 
uh, emphasis on a professional air sound from an announcing point of view, as well as just a clean, tight, no dead air, thank you, uh, engineering point of view. And um, we, you know, we realized that, you know, we had two audiences out there. We had our regular listener audience of, you know, students and fans in the, in the surrounding area, but we also had potential employers Mm -hmm. who were going to be listening to us uh, as well as uh, station management who could give us a good recommendation um, even though there was no LinkedIn back then. So there's, there's usually a mix of between people who actually want to go into radio and people who just enjoy doing it at the college level, doing it for fun. Do you think there were a lot of people on staff who were thinking about radio professionally at that time? I, from my recollection, there were more that were thinking about it professionally than not. Hmm. Uh, and, and they were easier to remember for that. Um, so, um, you know, I knew Jim Del Balzo was definitely, you know, heading for the record industry. Um, I, I knew the sports guys wanted to do it professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm trying to, trying to, trying to think of, you know, I, I, I knew that, that, uh, you know, somebody like Karen Hamble was destined to be on the air uh, some way, somehow. Uh, and, and it was fun because we didn't really know where, and, and I wanted to be, uh, we didn't know where we would end up, but it was, you know, the process, the journey of getting there, the excitement of, you know, uh, of what if, where, where will this go was, was fun. And, you know, the ones that wanted to do it the most logged the most hours mm-hmm. at the station because they loved being there. You could never be there too too much. Do you, as a transfer student, do you remember a, a time where you felt comfortable getting into the station and being there? Because uh, sometimes people come in, in in a particular class and they, they bond that way. But you came in as a sophomore. Do you remember getting comfortable socially at the station? Do you remember feeling at home and at ease there? Yes, very much so. Because we we were all we were all like the same stuff. I mean, you know, whether it was rock or country or whatever format, we all loved radio. And and I'm like, I I wasn't you know I wasn't like uh, it wasn't a race for me. It it was just it was a way of life, and um, I just soaked up every minute of it that that, that I could. So yeah, it, it it I don't recall anything but frankly fun. <laughs> mm. I, I love that line that it wasn't a race for you that it was just it was what you did and there were like-minded people around and that that sense of community uh, yes. it's a really wonderful thing that i think carries over time um do you remember your first time getting on the air at wvhc and if not the specific time do you remember feelings of anticipation or nervous or excitement what were you thinking getting on the air there uh, uh i i i think the first time I was on the air was probably subbing for somebody doing the late night rock show uh, changes. Mm. And I I think it was 10 to one was, was the hours of it. 
and you know getting called and saying hey uh so and so can't make it you know can can you take the slot and like the answer of course was yes yeah (laughs) didn't care if i had a test the next time the answer is yes and and i'm sure i was i was nervous and like you know forever you're you're like try programming the show in your head okay what song will i play first what will i play second what won't i do what you know the whole bit so there there was a nervous excitement um and like like anything the first time you know you get you get through that uh that first inning and then uh it it gets a lot easier pretty quickly so hmm. and you had some experience whether it was a, a low watt station you were you'd been on the air you'd worked as a music director so i'm guessing that that you felt pretty comfortable on air after that first show or maybe soon thereafter do you remember a time where you thought yeah i'm 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 really loving doing this and I want to keep doing it. Uh, I I don't remember specifically other than, you, you know, the, the more I did it, the more reinforcing it was that um, this is kind of, this is a happy space, you know, whatever mm. else is happening during the week. Once you step through the door of the little theater and, you know, you took over for, uh, you know, the guy who was, uh, right there before you, you know, it, it was showtime and you were, you know, you were in imagination land and it was you and that microphone and, and people who were out there and, you know, God, what could be better than that? So, um, I got pretty comfortable with it pretty quickly. And I, I think it, it was an advantage to have done it the prior year, uh, at another station. Hmm. Um, you've mentioned a few names, uh, Wayne and Karen and Jim. Who else was around uh, the station at the time as you were getting settled in there that maybe helped you get settled or maybe someone that you listened to and thought, wow, that's that's really good. I like that or, or I'm really interested in what they're doing. So, um, well, two things. So, so uh, I remember the station manager, Steve Fendel, mm-hmm. who uh, he and I became very good friends and he's still to this day very very good friends with steve uh uh linda dayletter the program director who was uh very welcoming and was was good at um uh you, you know praise you know handing out you know praise and making you feel good about what you were doing um and and, and steve by the way i remember because I, I used to listen to his jazz show and what I heard there was commitment to the art. And like, here is a guy who there's no bigger fan of jazz than Steve Fendel listening to this. Now, turned out he would be a, uh, more than jazz, he'd become a, a grateful dead um, <laughs> guy to the, to, to the max. And uh, Steve, Steve's a great guy. Uh, I also remember uh, Steve Graziano, uh, who um, became... Uh, the program director after Linda. And I I remember listening to Steve do changes and thought he had a killer, killer voice, extremely listenable. And uh, uh, he, I I think I recall correctly, Steve did the, the, um, the little sounder for changes the show. So he created this little uh, button with his voice on it. And it was very, very powerful. So um, 
had a lot of respect for all these guys and I, I, I learned a lot from them. Mm, that's great. Um, speaking of great voices, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about Jeff Krause. Do you remember meeting Jeff? Do you remember any uh, advice or lessons that he gave you as you were getting started at the station? Yeah. Don't screw up, kid. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff was great. I, I, I love, he smoked a pipe, as I recall, and mm-hmm. he, was, he was very thoughtful, very contemplative, and he listened. He, it seemed like, you know, he was, it seemed like he was listening all the time uh, to, to the air. And I, I had one unfortunate incident uh, where, you know, as a music director, this is sort of, uh, you're supposed to preview everything that's going to go on the air, all the records, but how are you going to listen to every single record that's going to go on the air before you log it in? And um, there was a song, I think it was by Tim Curry that came out that had an expletive in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I found out that it had an expletive in it as I um, <clears throat> played it. And I was like, oh my God, I hope that's the only time in the song that that occurred. And sure enough, and he did not, you know, he was good. He didn't call me during the show, but uh, I heard about it the next day mm-hmm. and it never happened again. And I deserved whatever he said to me, <laughs> but uh, I had a lot of respect for Jeff. I thought he was, he was great. He was a real father figure of that station and uh, carried himself in a way where when, when he spoke, you, uh, you generally wanted to hear what he had to say because it, it, it was going, you were going to learn from it. Mm. Uh, as you were telling that story about, uh, about Jeff contacting you the next day after that unfortunate song went out on the air, I imagined from my own experience and, and from other people's stories that it was a, a brief but powerful <laughs> conversation. And I don't expect you to remember the, the exact details, but I imagine he got his point across pretty quickly. Yes. Fredericks don't ever do that again. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that's how it went. And then, you know, he about faced and he, he walked away and I, I, I went and, uh, uh, I left the station very quickly. <laughs> get, get out of here, <laughs> quick, leave. And uh, all, all, all's well that ended well. Uh, I think we were all very fortunate to have had Jeff at the helm. He was uh, he was amazing, amazing guy. I, I think he, those of us who've, who've heard the voice and had conversations can hear his voice. Frederick, as you're saying, yeah, that's don't ever do that again. That's very good. That's very good. I feel like I need to create a special podcast of people just doing Jeff Krause impersonations. I think that would that would make me very happy. Um, but it seemed like he you mentioned this earlier that listening to the station even before you joined, you got a sense that it was very professionally run, that it was a, a tight ship, that that people were serious about what they were doing. And I think from what you're saying, a lot of that comes down from Jeff. Yes. Does that seem right? I, I, I think so. I, uh, you know, he just, he wasn't somebody who was just, you know, oh, I'm teaching a communications course and they want me to, you know, babysit the radio station and I'll say, Hey, you know, get paid a little bit more or punch a clock. No, he, uh, he put his heart and soul into that, that place and, um, and people respected him for it. So I, uh, it was, you know, again, it, it, it was, it was great. Mm. 
Um, we have the benefit of hindsight. We are talking about these memories, these experiences, friendships, relationships, career experience to look back at your time at WVHC. And, and you alluded to a little bit of this earlier. You had expectations going in. But I, I'm wondering if you can put yourself in your mindset at about 19 years old or so and you transfer to Hofstra to start working at WVHC. What did you hope the station would mean for you at that time and what did it become? Uh, I, I hoped it would allow me to, to feed my, uh, fascination and, um, uh, you know, it was kind of like a drug, Mm -hmm. a healthy drug, just my need to um, be creative and perform and connect with people. Uh, and, you know, it was dimensional because you connected with the people, you know, out over the airwaves and you connected with the people uh, surrounding you doing, uh, you know, p- putting putting the station product together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it, it certainly uh, became that for me. Bruce, this has been uh, a fantastic conversation. I, I really enjoyed hearing your stories, and, and thank you so much for sharing, uh, taking the time to share your stories. Can um, I give you? Can I give you two quick stories? Of, yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Please, please keep them me, coming. To me, um, two of the most uh, well, I say one was romantic, and one was was just kind of fun. Um, uh, there was in the winter of, I think it was the winter of 78 or 79 was one of those two. I really can't remember when there was a huge blizzard mm-hmm. that, uh, that hit the, the New York area and it shut everything down for the better part of a week. Hofstra shut down. Cars couldn't move. I mean, multiple, multiple feet of snow fell. Well, um, us, us guys and gals at the radio station decided we would keep the station on. This is obviously with Jeff's, Jeff's blessing, 24 hours a day as a public service to the wow. Hofstra and Hempstead community. Uh, and we would produce what we would call Weather Watch. Now, back then, I believe the station signed on around noon and then went to one in the morning. And that was it. I think the weekends, maybe it was on a little longer. And uh, it was fantastic. We had to decide, okay, who's going to be on when? What, what is the news angle to this? You know, how are we going to reach out to the students? And it was as romantic as it comes being able to, uh, because, you know, the residents of the campus, they were, you know, it was so much snow and everything was shut down. A lot of them were just in their dorms and they were getting bored. So we had to entertain them. Um, And we had to tell the people in the Hempstead community, you know, if you're over a certain age, shouldn't be shoveling snow. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, we had um, uh, actualities from, the police from all kinds of emergency services, we were knocking it out of the park. And for pretty much a solid week, we were on the air round the clock 
uh, and doing everything we could to put together Weather Watch, which uh, was was phenomenal, phenomenal radio for its time. So I remember mm. that, and then I also remember that. Well, if, if you don't mind me interrupting that, you, I, I believe that was the winter of '78, and okay. I want to say it was at least two to two and a half feet of snow uh, in the New York City area. Just, just remembering yeah. all the time I had and and part of the factor is one of the reasons I ask about where the station was with the station being in the basement of the little theater I've heard <laughs> numerous stories about it being difficult to get there under good conditions yes never mind there's two and a half feet of snow yeah and- trudging across you better stop at jack in the box on the way because you could be there for a long time yeah. so yeah so try you know start start you know Start leaving for the station long before your shift. And and I don't I don't know that the timing of the storm, but the 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 poor person who was in the station and maybe came out to a lot of the <laughs> snow or tried to get out. That must oh my gosh, that must have been something else. It it it, it certainly was. And then you know, and then finally, uh, well, two other things. One 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 was a ZBT dance marathon that we DJed for twenty four hours. It was twenty four hour dance marathon to raise money for some worthy charity i forget mm-hmm. which time and uh i got to do one of the um the slots and that that was off air that was just we took our um uh remote equipment over to uh wasn't the gym but it was it was connected to the student center or whatever that room was mm-hmm. community room whatever and it was so much fun uh doing it you know because most a lot of radio that you're doing, um, you know, you're in the station, you're not out, but doing re- remotes like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the ZBT dance marathon or you're in the Hofstra Rathskeller and we have a live remote with a band that came in getting to introduce the band. And then we had the fabulous poodles play. I remember once I got to introduce them was, uh, w- was wonderful. And then, and then the last momentous moment I remember was, the uh, erection of the antenna on top of, uh, I think it was Tower E or C, mm-hmm. and so. that that um, uh, really put us on the map uh, so that we became a, I don't know how many thousands of watts we were when we did that, but, you know, it was pretty cool. We did, you know, we did that, and... You know, the credit to people like Teddy Roddenberger, the chief engineer who, you know, orchestrated technically, you know, getting that thing done. And and I remember the promos for it. They said, well, WVHC finally gets it up, referring to the antenna. And everybody thought they were being very clever. And nowadays you probably couldn't get away with saying that on the air. But we did. We did back then. So, um very, very fond memories. And I, I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share some of them. Oh, thank thank you. These are wonderful stories. And I, I've been uh, grinning the entire time. This is, this is fun. I'm going to come up with more questions and hopefully you have a few more stories to share. All right, my friend. We'll, we'll talk soon. Be well. <laughs>